0: This is the podcast for Chris Heidel and Neil Modi. <laughs> and that's Chris and I'm Neil. Um, uh, hi, yes, I am Chris. This, I think this is podcast number four for us, Chris. It is, isn't it? We're, we're racking them up. Today, we're going to talk about Uber, Syria, and China. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. and I'm sure they all have something in common. Um, but uh, I, uh, maybe I'm going to dub a, uh, a a term here, the Uber effect. When when the question I was starting to ask you before we started recording here was, when will United States labor start to be as cheap as India and China? And mm. and. Are the Ubers of the world going to have the Uber effect as they have self-driving cars in replacing some of the uh, existing jobs in the market, therefore forcing pricing down? That's something I wonder a lot. What's the effect of, you know, the Airbnbs of the world?
1: This is just a complete thought experiment on my part, but...
0: Good. Bring uh, it on, though. We want to hear it. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, I you look at a country like South Korea, which has the highest penetration of robotics per capita, um, surpassing Japan, and they did it in uh, leapfrog fashion in just really um, like the last seven to uh, nine years, it's uh, pretty extraordinary. They didn't have uh, the same impediments to leapfrogging the labor market that the U.S. has, you know, um, the long-established labor unions and things like that. But I think that there's no question that that's the future, even if it takes us longer to get there. You know, the self-driving car, um, the the nursing industry, um, GE, I think it's GE, it might be Siemens, has the anesthesiology robot, right? Um, And there's a company that makes a, a, a burger chef (laughs) <laughs> yeah i That's saw that a,
0: right the perfect burger
1: yeah the perfect burger it's a 200 square foot machine but the burgers are cooked to order you can order them with your mobile app um the tomatoes are sliced fresh each time the burger is cooked to the perfect temperature so no potentially hungover <laughs> grill worker employee undercooking the burger um and anyway, and uh, absolutely fresh ingredients, kind of made to order. That's uh, obviously taking out a big chunk of the low end of the labor pool, uh, more of the unskilled labor. But yeah, it's with the the robot for anesthesia, um, as an example. There's definitely uh, a quick climbing up to the higher skill levels. So. I think, um, Neil, you might not have uh, a nice uh, Indian-style chef, but uh, a Rosie the robot that could cook (laughs) or something sooner rather than later, right?
0: Wait, so you you don't think that the price of labor in the United States is actually going to go down with people?
1: I think the price of labor, well, it has been going down um, adjusted for purchasing power. So U.S. workers purchasing power um, per hour of labor, so trading it, just kind of removing the monetary veil, uh, seemed to have peaked in the early 1970s. And I can vividly recall that, too, um, just anecdotally, because all of my friends, when I was a very young kid, had stay-at-home moms, all of them. As a young Boy Scout, we had a den mother. And now I see... Um, all families have, virtually, uh, both, both spouses working, both partners working. So you have dual-income families, and yet the standard of living is diminished um, from back in the, the 1970s when I was very young. And, um, and civic life has suffered a bit, too. So the, the, the actual, the real wage of American workers has been in decline for some time now a more concrete measure that people look at is inflation-adjusted wages for labor and non-supervisory employees. So your rank and file workers, um, non-supervisory employees saw their wages peak around 1999, 2000 on an inflation-adjusted basis. This isn't the purchasing power number purely, um, you know, purchasing power parity around the world, but it is um, important. But looking kind of domestically, those wages peaked and have been have been gradually falling, deflating for over 17 years now. That's uh, pretty alarming. So the, the <laughs> wages are indeed falling here, but what's falling faster is the cost of capital. So um, capital continues to replace labor, and that's what's letting the air out of labor's tires very slowly. It's not a big dramatic shift, but it's been happening slowly, slowly, slowly.
0: Wait, so, so I, I'd, I'd read something that uh, uh, that I don't remember. Maybe it's even Peter Diamantes' book that uh, when, a, as oil was able to be used in machinery, we no longer needed slavery as a uh, society. Not that either of right. us participated as <laughs> in that. Well. Maybe we right. Maybe one of us participated in some way. Um, but are you okay. talking about my ancestry? <laughs> I again? am talking about ancestry. Right. right. <laughs> I thought that the next major displacement in in the need for people, which would make the cycle go the other way, would have been robotics. And I don't necessarily hear that from you. Do you, you think that the population would get is just going to get more educated? when they can't drive Uber cars or trucks across the country or, you know, uh, clean houses?
1: So are you asking, is it my um, opinion or belief or um, theory that the the population of workers, of people, will become generally more educated?
0: Yes, that's the question I'm of the asking. Because
1: of robotics? Well, I think... Um, I I don't know um, for sure, Neil. I held, I'm generally very optimistic about it. I do think that first what we consider um, as jobs today is going to look very different, you know, just 10 years hence. I mean, we've talked about this before, I think you and I, but the Department, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics had a survey that I read, and this was back in 2000 nine or ten kind of the throes of the crisis but uh when talking about jobs they did a survey and found that two-thirds of the job descriptions that they now um, use didn't even exist in 1990 so in a back then it was a 20-year period the the job market per se had almost completely turned over so you had web developers and web design and
0: Yeah, I suppose you Um, weren't seeing informatics people back then either, right? Bioinformatics wasn't so popular.
1: Right, right, right. So, um, yes, the the education of the workers will change. Um, I think of Detroit as a great example. You know, there were all of um, these semi-skilled workers who were in the auto industry and as computer-aided design and things came in, a lot of those workers were no longer needed um in the design space but then other industries came in and could use their talents like uh striker which makes the joints, you know, synth- you know, synthetic, um, a knee replacement or a new hip. They could use the the <laughs> the guys who used to design bumpers
0: and shock <laughs>
1: absorbers right. <laughs> the chassis on a on a sports car could design your new knee um using the same kind of robotic uh and software tools so there's a there's a transferability of some skills and then some skills that maybe you don't really need to have a high IQ to do but you can do anyway so i guess they would be educated in that sense but i do see absolutely a displacement that continues especially for harder labor um uh, and more unskilled and semi-skilled labor to be replaced by machines. So, um, but I also am optimistic because leisure is the basis of culture, and in in some sense, the more um, leisure we have, then the more more plays, <laughs> more music, more um, wonderful restaurants, more things that we consider um, cultural gems will be produced more creativity could be unleashed there's a a lot of different avenues for growth i um am guilty of this too i think um ayn rand who i'm sometimes reluctant to quote philosophically <laughs> because some of her philosophy was you know uh, it was a stretch <laughs> to think of it in, in philosophical terms a little bit uh, of a self-anointed uh important person she was but uh The one thing she said I remember very clearly is most people are concrete bound. And I take that in many ways. I mean, I definitely think concretely um, rather than virtually or um, uh, expanding my imagination, imaginatively. You you really only know what you've experienced, touched, felt in the past or in, in the current environment. So looking around, we see this current palette of jobs or available skill sets that translate into some value creation, but it's hard to really know what that will look like in the future, you know, and you're right, somebody's got to be a mechanic to keep these robots running. <laughs> Someone's got to do the programming for them um, and the artificial intelligence, so they're both high-level jobs and um, mechanical hands-on jobs that will be created by a proliferation of machines um, where capital becomes continues to get cheaper and cheaper relative to that labor component. Interesting. So I, it's a brave new world, Neil, as long as the robots don't turn on us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I, I, I remember Elon Musk, uh, uh, somebody quoting that, you know, he believed uh, AI was really dangerous and then he invested a billion dollars in some artificial intelligence company, right? Um, so even Elon Musk doesn't really think the robots will turn on us anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, I... I I hope we make them sympathetic. <laughs> so you know, th- this leads me to more questions that we don't necessarily need to go down the bunny trail of today. Um, but I'm curious about the expansion of these VC funds. I see, I st- I'm starting to see a lot more of them. Um, and I, it, you know, by the numbers I've read, it's not like you know, just because I bought a new car doesn't mean I'm noticing that everybody has the same car there's actually a larger number of them and there's actually a larger number of dollars. Um, I, I, that may be unrelated in your mind in some way to the question I was just asking, but, uh, maybe next, next time we talk, we can talk a little bit about that okay. the expansion of all these different funds. Uh, and yeah. I guess the coming contraction of all these different funds.
1: Right, right. Well, like, uh, we've seen the extraordinary expansion and now contraction of hedge funds. Um, and a tendency toward hurting there. So a couple of things come to mind. One is, Neil, you're right to notice that it's multifactorial. A lot of our clients um, in the financial advisory space here are suspicious and skeptical of the capital markets, <clears throat> the you know, publicly traded markets, stock and bond markets. And so they're looking for alternatives where they feel they can get an understanding of it or have a direct and strong relationship of trust with the the founders or proprietors or an understanding of the technology. But so they want to get closer to the investment and not be, you know, have three or four middlemen in between and be subject to the latest central bank speech (laughs) and manipulation in the markets, uh, futures, et cetera, that send stocks up or down each day. They want a real long-term investment option that's kind of, insulated from a lot of this noise and yeah
0: and i think about my dad right he's pretty smart he's an industrial refrigeration engineer watches the news a couple of times a day reads the news and i think he also wonders you know like i think it used to be easier to understand where a stock was going than it is today
1: yeah and, and it's funny because i think in part the markets function for the most part pretty well um There are some anomalies, these dark pools where you can't really be sure that buys and sells are being matched. There's some things that have chipped away at confidence, high frequency trading. And then but the but the volatility for thinking people is just sort of off putting. I mean, who cares what Mario Draghi said last week? What (laughs) what are the economic numbers? And then, you know, the kind of false narrative that then gets promoted. Um and and no real contrary opinion. It doesn't seem like uh, a fair picture is being presented, and then secondly, some of these little nuanced things like high-frequency trading make it seem that the markets are less trustworthy. So I do think people question it, especially thinking people. Um, But complacency is easy, right? Human nature tendency is inertia. We just uh, have always been invested this way, and (laughs) the capital markets have, you know, generally been okay and held together, and we hope that generally is the case in the future.
0: But. That or you can go live in the forest like uh, some monk, right? (laughs) Inertia seems to make sense. Hey, not a bad way to live. The the monk's life is. uh, It it reminds me of that. uh, You must have read that story, uh, that little parable. This, This capitalist meets this fisherman in Mexico, and the fisherman just goes out every day, catches enough fish that he wants to eat, and that's it. And he says, no, you you got to think about expanding. Is it, why, what would that do for me? And he's like, well, if you expand, you can get to three boats, and you can fish triple the amount, and you can sell it. He's like, well, then what will I do? Then, then you'll buy a super big boat, and you'll <laughs> – from that super big boat, you'll go to a fleet of super big boats, and then someday you'll be able to retire and, and you know, fish again. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. He's like, well, why don't I just stay fishing now? It seems like it's working out okay. Right, right, right. right. right I right. think about that every time my wife uh, buys seeds uh, to plant in our garden at home, <laughs> right? <laughs> is 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 this my wife's hedge for becoming the fisherman instead of Microsoft, a Microsoft employee?
1: Ah, you'll have an edible garden,
0: right? <laughs> We We do have an edible garden, but yeah, <laughs> I digress too much, Um yeah, Syria. I know. I know this is an obvious next <laughs> transition point, <laughs> yeah. but I keep reading about Syria, um, and I, you know, uh, I I've seen some news on it. I understand that you know bad things are going on there, but again, I don't always understand how it affects what's going on here, um, and I'm always curious about how all the puzzle pieces go together, such that you know we'll start to see you know what wh- when will we start to see startups that help evacuate people out of countries quicker um during uh regime change that is bad you know that causes genocide um and I, i'm curious how it's affecting you know the price of oil today or the price of my milk or anything else i'm i'm thinking about that i'm not even conscious of yeah
1: yeah well um the conflict is heart-wrenching for sure. It seems now Russia has um, is pulling out their military um, engagement from Syria, and it looks as if they've um, really helped to push um, ISIS ISIL um, back. And so the timing is opportune, and it leaves um, Russia looking favorable to me in the eyes of the. Uh, European allies who are also our allies and who sided with us with sanctions. So very immediately, I think, there's a chance we'll see the sanctions against Russia, um, at least from the European end, lifted because there's now a much more favorable opinion that Russia struck out against ISIL and sort of isolated them and removed a lot of their offensive capabilities has also served to stem the tide of migrants flowing into Europe, at least slow it down dramatically. So, again, for that, I think the Europeans are um, somewhat relieved. But still, they have this big mass of people um, that continue to, to go there. I don't know. I, I have these alternating visions between um, Spengler and Leo Fabinius. Oswald Spengler was the German uh, cultural historian of the 1920s, and he wrote this book, The Decline of the West where he conceived of civilizations in um, uh, morphological terms, kind of like the human life cycle from birth to adolescence to maturity, decline, and death. That big arc um, is how civilizations progress. It seems reflective. They are um, an embodiment of our own um, human failings and successes. So it would seem that that could be uh, taken as a a given. But um, Spengler, of course, uh, had thought in his book titled Gives It Away that the West, ideas of the West since the Renaissance were already approaching um, their past middle age and moving toward decline. (laughs) Um, And that something else would come to supersede uh, the West. But he sort of uh, envisioned um, chaos and uh, 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 sort of falling apart of uh, like a return to the dark ages is how I I remember his writings. And um, Forbinius was also um, a German culture historian, but was an Africanist and uh, um, a much more optimistic thinker and thus is a more comfortable uh, um, philosopher for me <laughs> because he viewed he really uh, suggested that we think about not only what's being lost but what are we gaining because something always steps in to replace that which um, is fading away That's not there are no vacuums in in the real life world uh, of civilizations. something steps in to fill the void but what is that something and what will it look like? And that's kind of where I'm looking out. I think of um, the the mass of people coming from Syria, and it reminds me uh, it, of Spangler and Furbinius because it seems like the sack of Rome. You know, when the Romans opened up the the German Rhineland to the Goths, the Visigoths, the tribe that was the one of the tribes that eventually sacked Rome. So it was. Um, a terrible mistake <laughs> for them to do that, but they were trying to create a buffer in the German Rhineland uh, to keep out other um, enemies and barbarians. Um, and the U.S. has been at it in our own foreign policy for a while, arming the Mujahideen, most obviously, against the Russians in Afghanistan, and then the Mujahideen became becoming themselves Al-Qaeda and turning the guns on us um and then arming moderate Syrian opposition which then became ISIS <laughs> i mean our human resources department in the middle east is terrible <laughs> we need a better <laughs> charge department seems like <laughs> it always
0: has been too <laughs>
1: yeah no it really always has been we've we've mucked it up but that's um in in spangler's telling of it it's kind of a a sign of that decline and desperation um to try to cling to an idea that's passed already um, of empire, of growth, and of strength, and so I don't quite equate these um, massive migrations with the hordes of Goths who were sacking Rome, but it is going to change the cultural face of Europe for sure. I mean, it's a lot of people. Um, that
0: could be good too, right? Like, like your.
1: Of course, of course, and a shot of energy for them, because I mean, Europe's already, you know. Spangler was writing from Germany <laughs> and um, you know one of my old friends when I worked at Morgan Stanley used to always refer to Europe as the outdoor museum
0: <laughs> but,
1: but he was right in one sense I mean there's still innovation there and there's been more of of late but um, in terms of business and the, the social climate and everything you know Europe had uh, many European countries France is a great uh, example of that we're clinging to a past um of 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 high culture that really no longer translated to today and i get the sense too that america is guilty of that too you know we're we're still thinking we're the policemen of the world but other powers like china um have risen and can take on that role but we don't want to give it up um and we're suspicious of them and we still you know this um we still view the loss of the American hegemon as something to be lamented and defended. um, And I think that's a bad idea. (laughs) We could use some help around the world. We don't need to be spread too thin. Um, And we can make allies in the process. But anyway, that's a... So yeah, the the Syrian crisis, um, I think you're right in the long run, could be a great net positive.
0: So what's different about Syria? Why is it affecting... You know, why is it on nightly news? Why is it on NPR all the time?
1: Well, I think there's an undercurrent of resentment is one. I mean, it's multifactorial, I think. You know, one of the factors is it's spread out. It's not isolated to Darfur, to one particular region in some backward or dark, no pun intended, corner of the world where people can only see it if they really focus on it so you can turn a blind eye but the the migrants are so so numerous and um have been coming to so many parts of europe and it includes things that um at least in the the western mind are critical like uh you know greece of course the isle of lesbos is taking all these migrants greece is a stopping point it's the birthplace of democracy <laughs> really was that kind of beginning of Hellenic culture and civilization and Western ideals and now all of these folks from the Middle East are coming in to that place and then of course into Germany, into France, Sweden um, and, and the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark they're all um, experiencing uh, this wave of migration and so it's coming from many different areas. I also think that the European press is, um, um, not letting go of this. They're holding, um, holding this, um, before us and it's not being pushed aside as quickly, um, with the news flow of other items, but it's very present for them. And I think there's a lot of blame of the U S it's, um, the foreign policy mistakes that we have made, um, are largely in the European mind for sure uh, to blame for the, for the current crisis. And I think there's a, a feeling that the U S hasn't done its part. Like they've got to absorb all these migrants that came from the U S policies of arming ISIL and uh, not necessarily, uh, and, and supporting the overthrow of Assad and Libya and everything we've touched over there is kind of a mess. So the the crises that we have created um, and and to which they've allied themselves are now bigger than they could have imagined. So I, um, yeah, I think it's a um, a lot of negatives for the reputation of the U.S. certainly in foreign policy circles that have um, kept this crisis in the forefront.
0: Well, I may, maybe thankfully for the United States, then you know we're going to get a new president in short order. Yeah. I say yeah, maybe I, because yeah. <laughs> depending on who comes in it may not be any better.
1: No question about it. I mean, you know, you can't um blame the Obama administration directly for this crisis. It's happening under their under this new administration's watch, but the policies, uh especially this kind of neoconservative Middle Eastern policy has been around for a couple of decades back to um you know um George H W Bush the first and then to uh the Clintons and then um under of course uh, W uh George W Bush with the two unfunded wars and um you know uh and then the destruction of Libya which um happened with uh, under the Obama administration so it's just in a terrible uh mess over there, and it was bound to happen. I mean, we're as confused as anyone else, it seems, and uh, things just get worse. So I was thinking that we would definitely have some sort of reset when the Obama administration came in, but it does appear more uh, obviously now than it ever has that those policies of the military seem to have a life of their own and continue and continue. Um, when Obama announced that we didn't have a plan to deal with ISIS, and then he said, I'll tell you what we're not going to do, we're not going to bomb him. Everyone got upset and said, what? We have no plan. He's weak. He's this, he's that. I just think he was right. We've been bombing (laughs) and and deposing leaders for 60 years. And it's only gotten us deeper and deeper um, uh, into this mess. So, but, shortly after that and uh, the public criticism, he announced we're going to bomb both the Assad's (laughs) offensive forces and we're going to bomb ISIS and their offensive targets, which of course didn't work. Um, the Russians had to come in and really target Assad's enemies and that pushed back ISIS. Our, um, our efforts seemed half-hearted is the only way to say it. Um,
0: so speaking of, totally. of, of bombs in the economy, can, can we move over to China?
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, China. <laughs> you were saying before we started that there was a, a trillion dollars in social financing. I know we've talked about China a, a bunch and um, it, it almost seems like there'll be a regular China segment for us every few episodes because there's so much to talk about there. Yeah. When, when will, yeah. when do you predict the regime change will happen? Let's start there.
1: This is a, this is a tough one.
0: We, you know China. what? We, I don't know if we can, but we should invite our... our we have a friend who uh, has a lot of good knowledge about China. We should invite him to the uh, podcast. I don't know if he can. Oh, Leo? Yeah. Oh, he'd
1: be great. He would be really great. It'd be great to have that opinion, but you know, I mean, as an outsider, um, and we should probably have a European come on to talk us talk us through their you know their views, either a um, a Brit or a French or German friend of our of ourselves to come talk about the European view of American foreign policy and what's happening with the Syrian refugee crisis too.
0: Well, you you but, do have a uh, a pretty intelligent French friend who lives really near you.
1: Oh I have several yeah i have a a couple of which would be great. I have one who's extremely well, he's French. I was gonna say he's extremely political <laughs> but every french every French person I know is a very avid political junkie. I'm serious every single one they don't have the the disengagement that Americans sometimes have about politics but in uh in China, it's uh, fascinating because uh Everything just seems extraordinarily large. The housing bubble, the prices, the. Um, the number stock of startups prices. I
0: read about, the, the financing going on, it's insane.
1: It is. So, you know, I'm uh, still uh, more or less a strong, but the strongest school of economic theory to which I adhere is the Austrian school. The Austrian economists, as they're now called, were really the earliest economists in a sense. I mean, you had Ricardo and some others who were, they called them the earthly philosophers, the, the political economists, but um, really economics as a science advanced greatly under uh, Eugene von Bauer work and Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Hayek and these guys who were almost all Austrian thinkers. But um, anyway, the, They always advise that you have to really watch the credit cycle. That's the elephant in the room, not the equity markets or these economic numbers or price indices that can be manipulated, um, labor market statistics. Um, The credit cycle tells all and leads the way. And, um, you know, when you think about it, China has, uh, and this is a global phenomenon, but China's been a big contributor. They had, in total social financing, Around 5 trillion US dollars. And total social financing is their wonderful Communist Party moniker for bank debt. (laughs) So total bank debt um, was around 5 trillion dollars at the time of the Lehman Brothers crisis. It's grown to 35 trillion. So it's been sevenfold growth in as many years, roughly. And um, that's been extraordinary in keeping the global economy somewhat afloat. Now it seems that um, there's a crisis because there's a point at which the credit growth feeds on itself. It becomes like a Ponzi scheme. The, The credit expansion gets to be too big. The projects that get funded don't return enough to service the debt. We see this, for example, in shale oil. We've produced so much oil that the price of the stuff has collapsed, and now, you know, operating uh, a tight oil or shale drilling rig, you need about $45 a to $70 a barrel, depending on your operation, to break even, and with the price, you know, it's come back up to $42 or so today, which is remarkable. But when it's down at twenty seven dollars a barrel <laughs> you're just losing money, losing money, losing money and if you've borrowed to fund that um, exploration and drilling operation, then you're not able to to service the debt so at some point you borrow more money, you keep rolling that debt forward um, and this is it's like a ponzi scheme it reminds me um. Very much of, of what's happening in China now, because just in January alone, the last numbers I have, China's total social financing grew by $1 trillion. So a trillion bucks a month. And I know that Wait, that's not all month a going.
0: month? You're not kidding. In one month. What's the national one, debt of the United you know? States? What's that? What's the total U.S. national debt? I'm just kind of curious about this in comparison.
1: The total U.S. national debt is around $18 trillion.
0: So, in 18 the months, these debt. guys would have spent more money than the United States' entire debt.
1: So, the, the United States government's debt is around 18 trillion. Our total um, bank debt, total um, non financial bank debt is probably, and I don't have this number at my fingertips, but I'm imagining it's around 60 trillion.
0: Well, but, clearly, um, China can, th- can continue to spend at that rate, right? Right. Right. So but the, the question I have. So you, to, you still haven't answered my question. When's your prediction of the regime change? Then you can ask your question. <laughs> right, Let's get right, right to it, Chris.
1: Because Well, Neil, it's it's it seems to me you're right. That's a great question because it's all optics right now. It's optics. The the new debt is being created to retire the old debt yeah. or to service it.
0: So I, I'm looking you know, for a date. I'm looking for a quarter and a year for me right now. Are you saying Q4 2016, Q4 2017? I'm looking for a real – you don't have to be right on this. But you're the guy who's who's collecting (laughs) the most – I promise I won't be. (laughs) Uh, That's perfectly acceptable. But you're you're the person I know who's spending the most time looking at this um, in terms of what's going on in the economy. And as a result of having lived there and loving the Chinese people, I know it's got to be weighing in your heart and your head.
1: Yes, yes, yes. They've so far been able to squelch the protests, but how long can they continue to fund this? I give them till the middle of 2017.
0: Do you want to translate your answer in in, in Chinese as well, just so in case, in Mandarin, in case any of your fans happen (laughs) to listen? Can can we just hear you say that, please? Yes.
1: Uh, Shanian so the middle of the year next year, 2017. So um, it'll be right there in the middle of the year that there's a regime
0: change. What? What? And where, where? You know, this is really maybe a drab ending. So we shouldn't quite end on this note. But it seems to me when the regime change comes and China collapses, it's that's the thing that has will have the biggest impact on the United States. Um, Worldwide, well, the global than,
1: economy, really, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, more so than the, the the Greek Euro crisis did, or could have. It seems like China is really going to be a major issue for everybody.
1: Huh. Could it be, could it be, Neil, though, that China's decline is like Japan's? That it happens slowly over time? Like Japan peaked, which was a huge, I mean, just a monstrous credit bubble um, in January of 1990. And with, in fits and starts, it's just continued to decline over 26 years. Um, that economy just has shown no growth. Um, and it's like the air, again, slowly coming out of the tire. There still might be some fireworks <laughs> at the end. When Japan has to put all this debt they've created to stop the blood loss or try to triage this dying patient, their economy, um, all these paper bandages have to come off, uh, and the patient actually expires, and they have some sort of new economic model to replace it. Um, We tend to think in in very dramatic terms um, as a sort of Hollywood ending, and we've certainly seen financial markets behave that way because they're – an exodus of our thinking, our fear, our greed, our anxiety, all at once. But China is an economy, and um, in a sense, I guess the, the regime change as it happens could be replaced by something that's more open, honest, and fair. There could be reforms that are very positive. China's um, history in the last 160 years has not been that great. They've more often closed up and gone backwards, so... But, yeah, it would be a remarkable thing to see if they could um, come to a more open transparent uh open and transparent uh society than they have now. I don't know so the middle of next year, neil, there's gonna be a new premiere
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right um Let's end on a positive note. What, 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 what positive trends, what are you most excited about in, in, uh, well, in making money for your clients? And, and I'll ask you to, to actually tra- get, give your answer in under two minutes and translate it both into Spanish and Chinese as we end this episode here today. <laughs> so I might as well put it on the spot, right, if we're going to have fun. Yeah, yeah, you know... Um,
1: again, a sign of my uh, being concrete bound, there are a couple of things which are exciting to me. One is the um, the very, very crowded trades, which I like to um, bet against, um, are starting to work beautifully in our favor. So, a lot of investors say they're contrarian, but they don't. But the herd mentality and tendency is very strong. And look, I know why. Um, John Maynard Keynes said it's better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally as far as reputation goes, right? <laughs> Neil, I shared with you in 2008, I had clients we did very well when the market crashed, and they said that they were somehow embarrassed. They had a little shot in fruit. They were, they would sit around dinner conversations with friends who talked about my 401k. No, I don't think you shared this. K.
0: I don't think you shared this. I didn't, huh? No.
1: Yeah, so I had these interesting conversations where I'd ask clients, we did very well, we made money when the market sold off, we protected your wealth, how do you feel, can you recommend other people who might benefit from our services, like a question about recommendations, referrals, and a lot of clients were somewhat embarrassed. I was shocked at first, but on reflection and having grown in understanding human psychology more, I know better. They were embarrassed to tell their friends in some ways, not everyone, but a remarkable number of people were, rather than just. Chris, those, those clients about were not
0: droughty Indians. I can just tell you, they're <laughs> not from the same state of in <laughs> India that were. I'm from. That's true. That's very true, Neil. That's very. Sorry, true. continue. I didn't mean to cut in on that, but I was just thinking. No, no, no. That no that but they were saying happened.
1: that you know sometimes they just didn't feel comfortable saying, you know, when they're in a crowd and everyone is experiencing something that's negative, that they didn't feel like well. <laughs> We're doing great, you guys <laughs> are losing your retirement, but we're okay. You know they would just kind of nod and be be quiet. It was very interesting. It reinforced that that saying from uh, from um, Keynes about succeeding conve- failing conventionally rather than succeeding unconventionally. But more importantly, it it kind of reminded me that very few people have the stomach, uh, even investors and Institutions that say they are contrarian or they model contrarian investments have the, the strength to do it. Because if you're wrong, and we've been there too, um, then you really look like a crackpot. <laughs> you're alone. Your investment thesis was uh, proven incorrect, and no one else is alongside you. Um, it's It's cold. It's warmer inside the herd,
0: <laughs>
1: even if the herd is going off a cliff. So, but to that point, I was just going to say the most crowded trade we've seen recently has been the dollar. Long U.S. dollar. Everyone's crowding in there thinking the dollar is the best currency. And um, I'm happy about for- that when I go
0: visit Vancouver, by the way.
1: Oh, yeah. No, and, and the dollar has been remarkably strong. But over the last month or so, since mid-February, it started to weaken. Um, And uh, that's been greatly beneficial to a lot of the investments we've made. And in particular, you can see it reflected in the gold price. But that also has to do with NERP, this negative interest rate policy. I'm not as smart as the Federal Reserve, so I have no idea. uh, And they're economists and experts. I have no idea what they're trying to accomplish with negative interest rates. I mean, I have my suspicions, but it's a policy of confiscating (laughs) the depositors' wealth, and uh, I think we've seen enough confiscation uh, from the banking system already. But anyway, the, the Fed, too, is strangling the banks because they're crushing their net income margins. So we've benefited, you know, the banking system, the financials have rolled over and been contracting um, since early in the year, and especially with negative interest rates now, on over $8 trillion of sovereign debt out there in the world. Seven different countries now sport negative interest rates. So we've had long-term treasury bonds, too, which have benefited because as interest rates fall, the bond prices go up. And we don't have negative interest rates in the U.S., but the Fed has said that's not off the table. Now, it's remarkable because just eight weeks ago, they were talking about hiking rates. And they had a, a their dot plot, and the promise was, we're going to keep hiking rates. And now, they're equivocating. Some Fed members, um, members of the FOMC, are backing away and saying, no, we're not. But what changed in the last eight weeks to make this such a stark uh, difference? <laughs> we're talking about higher interest rates and a regular path toward, quote, normalization, unquote. And now we're talking Chris, about it's the back clear to me
0: you're not a central banker. But that's all I have to Oh, say in response <laughs> to that. <laughs> like, what happened in yeah. the last eight weeks?
1: Oh, I'm not even a fan. I'm not a fan of the system <laughs> of central banking. It's a it's a terrible system, but it exists. It's what we we all have to deal with. I do think there are some positive things a central bank could do, but it's probably better just to end them.
0: <laughs> so so now that we've insulted like some of the most elite groups in the world between China and the central banks, if we can make it to the next episode, I think we're gonna have even more fun for number five. Oh yeah. Yeah. Will. Thanks for joining us, everybody.
1: Yes, thank you for listening in, and thanks for your time.